0: Glad to see so many people who I don't know. It's always fun for that to happen. So welcome if you're visiting this morning. Also, if you're watching on the live stream now or sometime in the future, welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, For those of you who don't know, we are in a teaching series right now called Evangelism Like Jesus. And the point of that series is to go through and look at different pieces of Jesus' life and his ministry to try and understand what it means for us as we try and live the gospel out and try to communicate the gospel to the people that God's placed in our lives who need the gospel. So we're going to continue on this journey this morning. We're going to be in Luke 7. Uh, We're going to start in verses 36 and go through verse 50. I'll read that for us this morning. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. you can also find it in the blue Bibles in front of you. I'll give you a minute to turn there or find it on your phones or what have you. And when you're ready, I'd ask if you could, one more time, please stand for the reading of God's Word if you are able. Luke seven thirty-six through 50. Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, I pray you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears this morning to what you would have us hear from your word. Lord, I pray you would guard my, my words, that they are yours and not my own, and that your people would be edified this morning and built up in your spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Go ahead, take a seat. So, this story is uncomfortable in a couple ways. Like, and it's okay that it's a little uncomfortable, right? If you were in this room, when this happened, you might feel a little bit awkward. You might even feel a little bit of secondhand embarrassment. And I think that's okay. I think sometimes we assume that the Bible is weird, and that if it's weird, we just probably lack some context. And if we only had it, then everything would f- seem okay, but this is one of those situations where as we add cultural context to this situation, it gets weirder, right? It gets more awkward. And that's good because the gospel is weird. It should set us apart. It should mark us as different from the world. So if the gospel's weird, we should be a little bit weird. So I'm going to walk through this morning. We're going to add some of that context. We're going to see what's really happening in the story. And then we're going to see what it means for us as we're called to bring the gospel To the world. So, first things first, this lunch invitation is suspicious, to say the least, right? The Pharisees aren't necessarily known for liking Jesus, and there are a few of them that do, but they fly under the radar for the most part. So, the fact that a Pharisee is inviting Jesus to his home for a meal should set some alarm bells off in your head. I'm sure it did for Jesus as well, but he went anyway. Now, these rabbi-to-rabbi lunches were actually pretty common in the day. One rabbi would invite another into his home for a meal. They would sit and eat and talk, and they would ask each other questions. And this was usually actually in like an outdoor seating area like a courtyard, and the public would be invited in. So people from the community would come in to listen to these teachers converse. It was actually, it was probably more like a late-night show interview or a podcast just in first century Capernaum. Hospitality was actually a really big deal for the Jewish people. There were things, customs, that a host would do to honor their guest. And these shows of hospitality are a focal point of this story, so I just want to review them real quick. First, as a guest entered, the host would greet them with a kiss of peace. This is usually like a kiss on the cheek that was meant to welcome or honor the guest as a peer and an equal then they would either offer a basin of water or call a servant so that the guest's feet could be washed. At that time, shoes were essentially just a strap of leather on the bottom and a strap of leather on the top, and that was it. They didn't offer much in the way of protection, and the streets were made of dust and full of all of the things that they would be full of if you have livestock in the street all the time. So it's just a messy situation. So if you're going to sit and recline in someone's home for a meal... In any level of comfort or dignity, your feet would need to be washed. And finally, the host would smear some fragrant oil on the head of the guest. And this was profoundly symbolic for the Jewish people. And it's yet another show of honor and respect for the guest. Now, Simon offers Jesus none of these. None of these customary shows of respect. And we don't know exactly why. But he's going out of his way. He's shirking social convention to dishonor Jesus. And he's doing it in front of a crowd, too. You can almost hear someone from the streets of Capernaum leaning in and asking Jesus, Man, aren't you embarrassed? This is this must be embarrassing for you. Meanwhile, word is getting around that Jesus is at Simon's house. And like I said, people start funneling in. This woman. and she grabs this flask of ointment. Now, ointment, the word ointment here, in contrast to oil, is just expensive, fragrant oil, right? So it's an expensive piece of material she's going to grab here. Now, this woman is known in the community as a sinful person. The NIV translates the part of the verse that identifies her as a woman who lived a life of sin. Now, she was known for that. That's what people knew her for in the community. And you can contrast that with the Pharisees who were known for their so-called righteousness. But knowing that she would be ridiculed and chastised chastised going into this situation, she goes anyway. Because Jesus is there. She gets there and she sits closer to Jesus than probably would have been appropriate. At his feet, she begins to weep. And she uses her tears to wash Jesus' still dirty feet, drying them with her own hair. As she's kissing his feet, she pours this flask of expensive oil onto them. And she's laying at Jesus' feet, weeping. With Her hair is now this f- a filthy mess. She's poured today's equivalent, if you do the math, of about $3,000 worth of ointment. I can tell you how I got that later, but... I'm not going to dwell on it for now. So it's, about, it's not an insignificant amount of money this woman is spending to lavish Jesus with her worship. You can almost hear people saying, doesn't she know that she's embarrassing herself? The whole community is here. What is she doing? Now, if you contrast these two responses to Jesus, and I think there's a, I have a table up there for, for that if you want, Yeah, there you go. You can see that at every space and every option that Simon had, he failed to do the minimum. He shirked the social expectations for offering honor and dignity to a guest. Meanwhile, this woman went above and beyond what was expected of her to the point of shirking social expectations the other way and sacrificing her own honor and dignity. There are a few conclusions that we can draw from this. Simon doesn't know he needs to be forgiven. And he certainly doesn't understand where Jesus fits into his story. This woman knows one thing and one thing alone, that she needs Jesus. Simon's world was wrapped around himself. He thought that he was the wise teacher. He thought he was the one worthy of honor and dignity. And he sees Jesus as a threat to his own status. So he seeks to degrade him, seeks to put him down. Simon didn't believe he was a sinner. He didn't believe he needed forgiveness. This is common for the Pharisees. They believed they kept the law perfectly. They actually thought that they were not sinners. This reminds me of a story that happens in, earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke 5. It's uh, starting in verse 27. I'm just going to read that for you real quick. After this, this is something else Jesus was doing. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, elsewhere known as Matthew, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is not suggesting for a moment that the Pharisees are in fact righteous or not sick or sinless. He is saying that his salvation is only for those who who know they need saving. Those who think they have nothing to be forgiven of, those who have nothing to repent of, or so they think, Jesus doesn't have anything for them. That's the main difference between Simon and the woman in our story this morning. The woman knew she needed Jesus. She was a sinner, and you can be sure nobody would let her forget that. She knew where Jesus fit into her story. He was the one who could forgive her debt. She'd lived a sinful life, and it could be held against her, and was often. Often. But in her desperation, she clings to the only one who could break her chains. The one person who had offered her a way out of the self-defeating cycle of imperfection that she found herself in. The one person who had seen her first as a daughter and not as a sinner. The one person who was not embarrassed to call her his own, Jesus. And if Jesus is not embarrassed to call us his, we should not be embarrassed Call him ours. This woman wasn't—not in the least bit, right? So, what does this mean for evangelism? Right? What does this mean for us as we go about our life to bring the gospel to those who need it? We should emulate this woman. We should do as she did. She she has the right response to Jesus. I'm going to break it into two categories for this this morning, and how we can try and emulate this woman's response to Jesus. Number one, we should tell our stories more truly. And two, we should be okay with being weird. I'm, ca- I'm going to call it being gospel weird. Got one laugh. Awesome. Telling our stories more truly. So in preparation for this series, I read a book by Sam Chan. He's an evangelist over in Australia. As well as, I think, an emergency room doctor. And the book's called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. It's a great title, right? I love it. It's a good book. In it, he, he says that if we're going to reach people in our lives with the gospel, we need to tell good and true stories about how the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed our lives. And that was, that was challenging for me to read, I'll be honest, because if someone asked me what my story is and how the gospel has changed my life, I don't think I could tell that story very well. There's a story to be told, don't get me wrong, there is, but I just, if you asked me to tell it, I would probably stumble a little bit. I'd probably throw some theological maxims at you. But, like, I'm just not well-versed in telling my story should someone ask me. Jesus used stories often to communicate because we are people driven by story. That's how God made us. And here, he uses a parable to communicate to Simon that Simon is telling his story all wrong. And we should seek to tell our stories, the stories that our lives are, more truly by placing Jesus in the center of them. All that we have, all that we are, is tied to Jesus. And sometimes it's it's hard to see that. We got all twisted up in our heads and we about who we are and what we were made for, what we're supposed to be doing, and we just We forget. We need to be reminded of that. That Jesus is is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And this isn't a short thing. It's not an easy thing. It takes time. Telling our stories this way requires some hard work, understanding where trauma and sin have twisted our stories, where those things have taught us lies that we need to unlearn about who we are and what's important and what's true. Community helps us here. When we tell our stories to our brothers and sisters, they can help us see Jesus more clearly than we can see him on our own. God's given us all of his children to help us see him for who he is in his fullness. So I want to encourage all of us this morning. I'm working on it. I'm like, I'm just going through drafts and going through drafts. Do this work. Write your story out. Understand it. Take some time to try and see Jesus in it. Look back. Pray over the years. See where God has worked and what story he is telling through you and your life. Tell that story to others and let them speak into it and pray over it. Show you where you might be misunderstanding something. And then be ready to share it with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe intentionally invite them to coffee or somewhere else. You don't like coffee, go get tea. Ask them to tell you their story. Hear them. See what they're about. See what they're going through. And then tell them yours. With Jesus at the center. Because when we understand our stories in a way that magnifies Jesus, we see him more truly and we behold his beauty more clearly. And so do others telling our stories more truly. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we should be weird. Like I said at the top of this, the gospel is weird. We should be too, at least a little bit. Those who are doing right by Jesus, giving him the honor and glory that he deserves, forget social norms and expectations. Now, I might say something semi-obvious here. Jesus is not physically in the room, right? His physical body is not with us. So we can't love and honor Jesus in the same way this woman did in this story, right? That's not something we can do. So what are we to do? How are we supposed to do this? In Jesus' physical absence, we can honor him by honoring others. This is the teaching in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. I'll read that for you quickly. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is Jesus preaching about the return, the coming of the kingdom of God. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say unto you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What this woman does to Jesus, we should now do to others. Now, not exactly. Not exactly. We need to contextualize a little bit. It might be a little weird if you go around kissing people's feet and anointing them with oil and all this. Just a suggestion, don't do it that way. But, even if, even if we extract the principles for her actions and then reapply them into our context, we'll still be plenty weird there's plenty to be there's plenty room for weird in this story still even if you take away the physical actions of this woman so let's see what this might look like for us how we can wash our friends' feet kiss their cheeks and anoint their heads there's a really relevant passage about washing feet in John 12 i mean sorry John 13 verse 12 through 11 this is where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and he says this when he's finished he says when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, so that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. It's interesting that Jesus tied those two together, right? Our service and our message. Our service to people is tied in some way to the message that we have to give them. And one of the best ways that we can preach the gospel is by serving others 1 John four nineteen. we love because Jesus first loved us I think you can rightly say we serve because Jesus first served us so pick someone to serve take, out, take on an extra task at work clean your neighbor's car mow their lawn shovel their driveway if we ever get any snow and when they ask why are you doing this tell them say it. i'm doing this because jesus has loved and served me and the best way i can live in the light of that gift is to love and serve you kissing cheeks new testament is full of examples of this kiss of peace greet one another with a holy kiss that's romans 16:16 16, 16. we see the same thing at the end of first corinthians second corinthians and first thessalonians and I think it's safe to say, though, in our current day and age, this kind of affection has fallen out of style. Now, as I look around this morning, I can say there's at least five, maybe six guys in this room that at least once a month hear me tell them I love you. I just want to say that's not really common in the culture right now, for someone to have just love for their friends. Like, true love. I think a good example of this is my wife, actually. She was telling me how she introduced herself to Anna and Ansel. Some of you, I don't think they're here this morning, but uh, you guys, some of you know Anna and Ansel. Um, and I literally have a screenshot of her text that she sent Anna, so I'm going to read that to you guys this morning. She said it was okay. Good morning, Anna. I'm excited that you and your family have come to Terra. I just wanted to let you know, one of the things I love about our church is all the Navy families. For about eight years now, there's been a revolving door of friendships that have been really beautiful and a blessing to be a part of for a season. It's like there's a space in my heart reserved for a person, the person that just so happens to change every couple months or years, but the space stays there. The most recent friend in that space will be leaving in another month or so and it 's perfect timing for you and your family to arrive and to step into that space that 's already here for you. If my wife had sent that text to somebody outside of the body of Christ, they would have thought she was creepy i mean I mean that 's probably true right like it 's not common to see that kind of forward affection and we have the great honor and privilege of calling Anna and Ansel some of our closest friends and our kids are just, you know, they love each other. And uh, that wouldn't have been the case if my wife didn't go out of her way to love one of Jesus' children. John thirteen thirty five tells us that the world will know us. They will know us as distinctive by the love that we have for one another. That's how they know that we follow Jesus. So love your sisters and your brothers here. Don't be afraid of seeming a little bit awkward, being a little bit weird. Yeah, it will be a little bit, but it's the gospel. Then, invite other people into that love. Bring them into your community. Help them see the love of Christ that you have with your brothers and sisters. That's contagious. They'll want to know more. They'll ask you, what's going on? Why are you guys so weird? And then you can tell them. Finally, anointing heads. Psalm 23, 5 through 6 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the biblical story, anointing is a symbol of abundance and security that we have in the presence of God. The examples abound in the Old Testament when Jacob glimpses heaven. He builds an altar and he anoints it with oil. Israel's kings are anointed with oil, as are their priests. Most significantly, the word Messiah, the title fulfilled by Jesus, is simply translated into English, anointed one. As followers of that Messiah, Jesus Christ, we have that abundance, that security, that presence now. And we should bring that to people and give them a taste of heaven. And there's so many ways that we can do this. We can just be with them, listen to them, pray with them. But in the spirit of this story, I want us to address a specific way we can give people a taste of heaven. Hospitality. This is not the only way, by any means, but it's the one I wanted to talk about this morning. Calls to hospitality are more common than you would think in the New Testament. You can barely get through a New Testament letter without seeing something about hospitality. To invite someone into your home is a very intimate thing. It's a very loving and kind thing to do. To prepare a meal for them is as well. So much of Jesus' ministry happens around tables and over meals. This morning's story happened over lunch. The story from Matthew with Levi after he's been called, that's a feast. He's at Levi's table. It's through a meal, the Last Supper, communion, that Jesus asks us to remember him. And it's a meal, the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we look forward to in eternity. So what better way to give somebody a taste of heaven and to give them a meal in a home filled with the love of Christ. Now I'm going to read a little bit from a book here. Um, This is a book that my wife was given as a gift a while back. Uh, It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I I know some of you have read it, but it's very good. Um, Author is Rosaria Butterfield. So I'm just going to read this. This is just from chapter 3. I'm just going to read some sections, okay? to illustrate this, the importance of hospitality. Going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my my list of longed-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. the threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as the other believers from church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two year refuge and way station long before I ever walked through the doors of the church. The Smith home was where my the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible and with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sin. This Christian home was where I wrestled with my identity and where I first dared ask the question, is this who I really am? Or is this how the fall of Adam made me? Is it my authentic identity or the distorted one that came through the power of Adam's original sin to render my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue? I don't really need to say anything else about that. (laughs) There's probably a person or a couple or a family in your life that's been on your mind during this series. I want to encourage you to invite them in for a meal in your home and make it a good one. Pull out all the stops Go get the good china, a nice bottle of wine. Spend some time to really bake and cook the best meal that you can think of. Your favorite meal. Something that has a story attached to it. It will be a sacrifice of your time and your energy and your money. So use wisdom and discernment in what's going to be best for your family. But we want to show them the abundance of the presence of God through a powerful symbol. Show them their worth in the eyes of Christ, that he desires to bless them with his abundance. He's trying to use you to do that now. And when they ask you, why are you going through all of this trouble? This isn't a special event. This is not a birthday or an anniversary. Why are you doing this? Tell them. Tell them that, that God has changed your life. The gospel has Fundamentally shifted your story, that you have been blessed and you want to share that blessing with them. As it so often does, communion ties all these things together. It tells the story of the gospel and it compels us to tell our stories in the light of the story. It reminds us of the humiliating. An excruciating service that Jesus did for us. He died on the cross. Canceling our debt. Breaking our chains. Wiping away our imperfection. And giving us his perfection. It reminds us of the great honor he has given us. The dignity of calling us sons and daughters. And embracing us. Unashamed and unembarrassed to call us his. It reminds us of the great abundance that we have been promised the inheritance that has been secured for us, the overwhelming peace that we will have in his presence, the fullness of joy we will experience forever. We taste of it now as we wait for its fulfillment. And if you call Jesus Lord and Savior, he calls you daughter and son, and you are welcome at this table. And if you don't, and you're wondering why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do, Ask us, and we'll tell you. Let's close our eyes in prayer this morning. Father God, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us, how you've been faithful and steadfast in our lives, how you continue to work and show us who you are, how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much you want our best and our good, even when we, our idea of what that might be conflicts with yours. Thank you, Father, for that. Lead us now into this time of worship with open hearts and open minds and surrendered spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.